today's episode of AW360, I speak with Stefan Rolnick, head of the misinformation cell at Lynn, a UK-based communications agency. Stefan discusses the impact misinformation can have on brands, the state of misinformation in general, and then walks me through ways he works with brands to navigate the minefield of misinformation on the internet. I hope you enjoy this episode. Stefan, welcome to the AW360 podcast. I am very excited to have you on today. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to getting into it. So you are... <laughs> I'm going to love saying this. You're head of the misinformation cell at Lynn. Pretty cool job title. <laughs> I, it, it, <laughs> it's a very James Bondish type of thing in a, in a way. Uh, tell me, what, what does that mean? What, what do you do? It sounds so cool. And then people are so disappointed when they meet me. Um, <laughs> no, it's... Um, I suppose I, you know, I've had to do some convincing of friends and family that I'm not secretly a spy. And I can assure you that the job of fighting misinformation often isn't anywhere near as glamorous as the James Bond lifestyle. So um, what is a misinformation cell? I suppose quite simply, I and my team exist to support clients who are increasingly dealing with this problem that many of us are dealing with our personal lives, that there is information out there online and on social media that isn't accurate or is at least twisting the truth. And in our personal lives, that can be detrimental. It can break our relationships with close ones and friends and family. And I know lots of people who have these really heartbreaking stories of how that's happened. But in a business context, you know, and in a, in a government context, this toxic information begins to sever our relationships with our audience. So there is a kind of analogous severing of relationships there. And so if you're a business, that relationship with your audience or your audiences, I should say, that's the lifeblood of any business. And that's why increasingly we have clients coming to us and asking for support on these issues. And that's why the misinformation cell exists, other than to just give me a cool job title that I can show off about on LinkedIn. I'm very envious. I, I want regardless <laughs> of how James Bond it is or not. Um, <laughs> I, I, I am envious of the title. So tell me, before we dive deeper into this, it would seem to me that you would have to know how to identify misinformation in order to combat misinformation, mm -hmm. which makes me wonder, how much of the truth do you really know? <laughs> That's a good question. I think in the conversations we have, we try to shift the conversation away from this idea of veracity. How true is a piece of information? And that's that's extremely important, but it's not the only thing we need to be concerned about. You know, I hope there's no children listening here, but take something like Father Christmas um, in, in the UK, you know, Father Christmas is, it's a myth, it's a legend, but it doesn't cause any harm. So the misinformation cell, me and my colleagues aren't, you know, Scrooges online searching for people posting about Father Christmas and trying to correct them when they're wrong, because it, the, the danger with information is that it causes harm, not that it just misleads people. And so our concern is about misleading information, but the emphasis is actually more on information that causes harm. And information that causes harm is going to depend on your specific context. So in the context of governments, information that causes harm might be information that 
singles out an ethnic or religious minority for specific hatred. And we all know how information that is accurate is blown up or out of proportion to cause that kind of harm. And when you're in the private sector, the same thing is true. You know, reputational crises are rarely as simple as somebody said something false about somebody or their company, and now that's spreading. Because a lot of a lot of the best disinformation is actually built around kernels of truth. And so when it comes to identifying mis- and disinformation, of course, in our personal lives, be vigilant, rely on a small number of reputable sources who you know, and who you trust to get your information. But when it comes to this broader question of how do we detect threats for companies and reputations, it's a much more challenging issue because often the lies are connected with the truths and, and they feed off each other. And so identification is a big part of what we do. And that's because it's not an easy thing to do. If you don't mind, take me through a project where you've worked on identifying misinformation and then a form, informed a brand campaign so that they can proceed accordingly. So this is probably a useful jumping off point to talk you through our process. So our detection process goes beyond the simple social listening tools that many of us use, like Brandwatch, for example. Mm-hmm. We take a multi-method approach because what we've realized is that there's actually a danger in treating the noise you see on social media as equivalent to what's happening in your audience. There's a real danger in that. And we've seen mistakes being made in our industry where organizations have been hooked in to responding to something that they see online or on social media when they needn't have because actually their audience hasn't been exposed to it. So First, when it comes to detection, it's about us having as many routes in as possible for gathering a kind of narrative landscape, as many different narratives and pieces of misinformation as we possibly can. And that comes from digital means, it comes from human means, and it comes from you know quantitative means as well. We do a lot of quantitative work. And then the next thing we need to look at is where are the vulnerabilities? And we do that through directly speaking to our audiences. So a lot of this is about mapping what we're seeing in terms of misinformation narrative, the misinformation landscape, as I referred to just then, and mapping it onto our audiences. And we use a framework called the Wall of Beliefs framework, which I'd be more than happy to talk to you about. And what this framework allows us to do for brands that might have reputational issues with misinformation is understanding not just what misinformation is out there, but what misinformation should you be actually responding to and how? And it's that question often doesn't get answered by agencies who are supporting brands because it's a messy question to answer. It's a difficult question to answer and it's not glamorous. And it's through this use of these frameworks, this wall of beliefs framework, which is a best practice framework in misinformation strategy that we find the tools we need to identify the right pieces of misinformation to respond to and respond accordingly. Interesting. Tell me more about this wall. This is, this is, yeah, this wall of beliefs. So yeah, the wall of beliefs framework was developed in the United Kingdom government communication service. So there's a behavioral science team that sits in the United Kingdom government communication service. And we're honored actually to have some ex members of that team on our roster of associates and they kind of mark our homework. They developed this framework 
using behavioral science. And now they work with us to make sure that we're giving our clients the best service we can possibly give. Now, the framework itself. So the metaphor of the wall of beliefs, um, let's take your beliefs, for example. So the way you see the world, the way you relate to it is built on a series of beliefs. And there's some bricks or beliefs at the bottom of that wall that are core to you, your identity, your foundational identity, the way you see the world, the way you relate to the world. This could be like your religious beliefs or increasingly now your political beliefs, which are becoming more and more part of people's core identities of who they are. At the top of the wall, there's things that, you know, recently acquired beliefs that you don't hold on to that strongly about maybe a sports team that's doing well at the moment or a coach that maybe hasn't done such a good job or a specific fashion or you think electric vehicles are too expensive and not for people like you. These are beliefs that don't make up the core of who we are. They're based on more superficial or recent information. And so when it comes to the metaphor of this wall, the fundamental strategic truth here is some bricks are easier to replace than others. And you have to be careful about replacing bricks that are at the core of people's walls, because if you go to replace those bricks, the whole wall could fall down. So what do we do as humans when we feel like our wall of identity is about to fall down? We reject because we need to protect our sense of see our way of seeing the world. We don't want to become disorientated and have to reevaluate our entire worldview. So this framework asks us to ask two questions. And we ask these questions quantitatively with the audiences through data, which is how core is this belief, this misinformed belief or piece of information to somebody's identity or worldview? How strongly do they hold this belief? And the other one, which is a harder thing to message, which is how much harm does this belief cause? How likely is it to cause harm to key behaviours or reputational issues that we've identified. And what we do is we map that onto a kind of quadrant based on those two axes. And that gives us kind of four options for responding. So I can run you through those options if it's of interest, but I love talking about this stuff and I rarely check in to find out whether it's interesting or useful. So I love to nerd out, but that's basically how we do it. No, absolutely. Please continue. Cool. This is okay. very fascinating. <laughs> Despite the fact that you're not, you know, driving an Aston Martin around, apparently. I mean, maybe you no, are. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, fighting misinformation pays not quite as well as spreading it, but maybe we'll come on to that in just a second. <laughs> <laughs> so, so our quadrant is made up of these four strategic responses. So the first is managing behaviors. So if we have a belief that somebody holds very strongly, and is also likely to cause harm, we might focus instead of convincing, arguing, rebutting, we might focus on how do we manage behaviours? How do we enforce behaviours? How do we make it as easy as possible from a behavioural science perspective for this person to engage in the way that we want? So during the COVID-19 pandemic, this was like when you walked into a restaurant or a cafe and every other table was taped over and you couldn't sit on it. So some people didn't respect COVID lockdowns, they felt it was part of their core identity, that they they wouldn't respect them. And also it caused harm to people like me and you that didn't want to catch COVID-19. And so that's where managing behaviours is most relevant. If it's core to someone's identity, but it doesn't cause immediate harm, we might focus on an overarching narrative that pushes back against the misinformation. So challenging the kind of foundational narratives that the misinformation is built on 
by promoting a counter-narrative of our own. If the information causes harm, but it's not part of someone's core identity, that's when we'd say, get out there and rebut it, because people will replace their mistaken belief with your new information, and it's going to prevent a hell of a lot of harm. And then there's one of the most important quadrants, which people often ignore, which is watch and wait, because we struggle to do nothing. And there's there's not enough study being done into this idea of like harmology, like the act of doing something, making it worse. And so watch and wait is for, for those beliefs that aren't part of people's core identity and aren't likely to cause harm. And we often find ourselves emphasizing this to our clients, which you almost have to separate the personal from the strategic. You have to check in with yourself and be mindful of where your personal frustration your personal despair often in what you're seeing is bleeding into your strategic response because that can be incredibly dangerous. And that is where we're there to support clients, to help kind of clear the muddy waters of what needs responding to and what doesn't and make sure the strategy is focused on science and best practice rather than impulse and reflex and response as well. This is often a proactive thing rather than just a reactive thing. Do you often find with brands that they're, you know, that they instinctually want to immediately engage and and respond versus wait and see who doesn't i mean (laughs) brands are no different to people you know i i um i never stop being disappointed in quite how much nonsense i see on the internet and i i am very good at not engaging i'm not active really on personal social media but it's hard you know you see something that's not true and your instinct is to want to correct it and that That applies to you as a citizen and to you as a professional as well, because communications teams and brands teams are made up of human beings, too. And we see this information and understandably we want to correct it. The difficulty is, is we're on social media platforms that are designed to harness that to and fro, that correction and counter correction and boost it and promote it onto more people's timelines. So you know, we have to be very delicate about engaging whenever we want to correct something on social media. Let's say hypothetically, I'm a brand because (laughs) I wish I was. What are, say, five things I could do to address misinformation on a a regular basis just with, you know, the the, assuming I want to achieve the goals I, I want to achieve on social media platforms and out on the web? I'd say the first thing, and, you know, this is funny, this applies to brands, but this is also something that an old friend of mine who used to talk to young children about disinformation and conspiracy theories and radicalization used to say, which is know your vulnerabilities. So in it's slightly different context, but essentially if you were a brand, I would say know your vulnerabilities because the best disinformation leverages those vulnerabilities. It seeks out objective truths or at least lack of clarity and it, amplifies it and creates a misleading narrative around it and so the first thing you need to do is to know your vulnerabilities the second thing i'd say is misinformation and disinformation thrives in an information vacuum when it comes to stuff like this it's often whoever gets their first wins and so be mindful of your information vacuums and try to fill them as quickly as you can which brings me neatly to my third point which is be proactive, not reactive. And I want to be really clear about what I mean by that, because how do you be proactive if somebody hasn't spread disinformation about you yet? What that means is understanding the information environment around you. 
So what are brands like you facing that you haven't faced yet? What's the political context like? What's the social context like? And have a think about what beliefs are high risk to you, what piece of information could trickle down or spread across to you and your brand and have a plan ready ahead of time, not just to respond to it, to build up that connection with your audience ahead of time, which brings me on to number four, if I haven't lost count here, which is that sometimes the best response to a lie isn't a fact, it's a deeper truth. And that speaks to that framework that we were talking about, this amplifying that overarching narrative. I think often with misinformation, we think we just have a problem of information. And that's understandable because information is in the title. But actually, what we have is a relationship problem. We have a problem of a relationship with a specific audience. And actually, what we need to focus on doing is strengthening that relationship ahead of time, rather than just telling people that they're wrong, or that they're misinformed. I suppose I suppose the fifth thing here is understand what's in your control and what isn't. You know, sometimes we have clients come to us and they're halfway through a crisis and they come to us and they say, can you fix it? And, you know, short of phoning up Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg and telling them to get rid of this content, which which we unfortunately aren't in a position to do, we, we can't do that. And that's why being proactive is so important, because when a crisis hits, it's not all in your control. And sometimes it's going to take more than a tweet to deal with it. And disinformation is often sophisticated, it is often planned ahead of time. And so we might need to be exploring other angles alongside the communications. You know, unfortunately, this is sometimes a security issue. And sometimes it's a legal issue. So, you know, ending on a really important one there, which I try to check in with all of my clients, when it comes to fighting this and disinformation, which is just being really real with them and saying, you know, I'm not going to fix all of your problems right now. I can't put the the genie back in the box. But what I can do is help you identify what you can control and deal with now and look to the future and start to mitigate some of those risks ahead of time before the misinformation hits. It feels like in 2023 here, we have hit peak misinformation. Oh, don't say that. <laughs> I, 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 wish, I wish the peak was ages ago, but um, you know, I, it, it feels like just when I think we've hit it, we've yet to hit it. But you know, looking mm-hmm. ahead, what are your predictions around misinformation growing in, in the coming years and, and the importance of preparing for it? Predictions uh, are obviously a mug's game, so, wow. so I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll be careful um, because I'm, I'm sure I'd, I'd quite easily fall into the trap. But I'll, I'll, um, I'll blindly walk into this trap you've laid for me here and make some, um, if not predictions, prediction-adjacent comments. So <laughs> when, when I think about mis- and disinformation, you know, returning to that first point of vulnerability – I think about what makes people vulnerable. And we're looking at the broader sweep of mis- and disinformation here, of which brands are a part of, but this is like the broader appetite or the vulnerability to mis- and disinformation. And there's a few things that make audiences more vulnerable. And we saw a lot of them exacerbated by the pandemic. So the first thing is information overload. And I think that's something that all of us can relate to, is that feeling of bombardment with information. And this leaves us more vulnerable because often what disinformation does is it connects unconnected dots to create a coherent narrative. And I suppose all stories do that, but disinformation does that in a misleading way to cause harm. And so 
the more we're bombarded with information, the more vulnerable we are to these misleading stories that disinformation peddlers are spreading. The second one is control. So if I feel like I'm starting to lose control of my life and my circumstance, I'm more vulnerable to disinformation because it focuses my energy and my anger on something that I can control, an outgroup or a scapegoat. And so as we move into 2023, where we live in an increasingly uncertain world, that is certainly going to be exacerbating many people's vulnerabilities. And of course, the pandemic was a prime example of living in a world that felt beyond all of our control. And the final thing, which is again linked to the pandemic and exacerbated, is community. If we don't feel like we have a sense of community, if we don't feel connected to other people around us, we're more vulnerable to mis- and disinformation because anybody who studied this knows that there are communities built around disinformation. And you know what's really challenging, but often really eye-opening, when you're monitoring some of these communities, when you're reading some of these message boards, is just for a second to strip away that lens of judgment. And that's not to say that what people are saying is okay, and that's not to say that we shouldn't address it, but just strip away that lens of judgment and just kind of let the tone of the conversation wash over you. And often you find yourself seeing people who are isolated, who are looking for meaning, who are looking for purpose. And now this doesn't mean not going hard on the people spreading disinformation, but it's about being soft on the person and hard on the problem. And so absolutely, brands need to be really hard on tackling disinformation. But when you vilify these audiences, you often lose sight of some of the best ways to reach them back, which is to meet them where they are, to understand the predicament they're in, and then to try and bring them with you. I'm going to tell you, I think uh, you may have a more interesting job than your average secret agent when it comes right down to it. This is fascinating stuff. My last question is a bit more, I think, on the the, the sort of personal side as as we see the world as individuals versus, you know, how brands see things. Something you said earlier really struck me because I haven't heard it phrased this way before that, you know, misinformation, disinformation is one thing. But what we're really looking out for here is information that does harm. Mm-hmm. Do you think maybe we've done this whole issue a, a bit of a disservice by simplifying it as disinformation or misinformation? Something that is, you know, really that definition could change just purely depending upon your perspective of things. Whereas information that does harm is a very deliberate way of putting it where you're saying, no, this is stuff that's out there that is causing people harm. It's not, you know, a simple different way of looking at it. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? It it does make sense. I think about this a lot and I I I get challenged on it a lot as well in a really constructive way. Um I'm a bit of a history nerd. Uh, I spent a lot of time over the pandemic looking back at history through the lens of disinformation because you know, it's not new, you know. The Second World War was a result of one of the most effective disinformation campaigns in human history. And, you know, you're out in the in the US as well. And you don't have to read much history about the US Civil War to see parallels between the social breakdown that we see from information that causes harm now to how that played out in history. And I think that's why this lens, I I would call it an additional lens of analysing harm as well as truth is so important. Because there's a, there's a moral reason why we're doing this work, because people weaponizing information to hurt 
a, a, a group or a minority or to gain unfair advance, advantage in a free market. There's a moral reason why we're, we're tackling this. It's not just, you know, if we weren't interested in the morality of mis- and disinformation, we would have just, you know, set up a fact-checking service like all the other really helpful fact-checking services that are out there that really help our work. We would have joined them. And also, if you're a if you're an agency in this area, fact-checking is a much easier thing to sell. It's a, it's a nice, neat little thing to sell. But there's a reason why we decided not to do that and get into this muddy world, this this uncertain world. And when we started it, we weren't sure whether it was going to work financially. The reason why we got into it is because we believe in reducing harm quantifiably, whether that's you know reducing the number of people who succumb to anti-vax misinformation or reducing the effect of a disinformation, an anti-competitive disinformation campaign or a business and a brand. That's that's something that we care about. And if it wasn't about the harm, we wouldn't be in this business anymore. Stefan, I appreciate you taking the time to be on the show today. This has all been incredibly fascinating stuff. I, I love talking about it. Where can people find out more about you and Lynn and your incredible sell. <laughs> so uh, you won't be surprised to hear I'm not on a huge amount of social media. LinkedIn is the only platform that I'm on because it seems to be the friendliest platform. So Stefan Rolnick on LinkedIn, you can find me on there. And if you want to connect and hear more about what we're doing, that's a great place to start. And um, Lynn um, is on is on Twitter. We're, we're, we've got a website, lynn.global, and we're on Twitter at lynnglobal. I believe that is shocking preparation for me to not have me- memorized that Twitter handle. But like I said, I'm, I'm monitoring much darker parts of Twitter, so I would never come across our Twitter account. But yeah, Lynn Global is Lynn.global is the website. Stefan Rolnick on LinkedIn. Lynn is also on LinkedIn. So that's a good place to start. I'm sure there'll be links, etc., in the description. And I would just say to anyone listening who's concerned or if any of this resonated with you, then please do reach out because as you can hear, I love to talk shop about this and love to support people however we can. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for being on today. This was great. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. For more content like this, be sure to check out Advertising Week's growing roster of podcasts for the advertising, marketing, and technology industries at www.advertisingweek.com slash podcasts.